0: And welcome to another episode of Conversations in Anthropology. Conversations in Anthropology is a podcast about life, the universe, and anthropology. It is produced by David Border giles Timothy Neal, Cameo Daly, Mithali Maher, and myself, Matt Barlow. It's made in partnership with the American Anthropological Association and is supported by the Australian Anthropological Society. Tim Neal here to introduce you to this episode's conversation between our very own, the very clever, Cameo Daly... And two great guests, Imelda Miller and Olivia Robinson. Amelda Miller is curator of Torres Strait Islander and Pacific Island Studies in the Cultures and Histories Program at the Queensland Museum, and an Australian South Sea Islander, while Olivia Robinson is lead of collection engagement at the State Library of Queensland and a Bidra woman from Southwest Queensland. Both have extensive backgrounds in working to reconnect people to the objects held by these institutions. Institutions of the settler colonial state and objects often collected in the first instance by non-Indigenous anthropologists and other researchers. I was one of the collective to edit this episode, and so I've had the pleasure of spending a bit of time with the tape. And two of the words that really resonated throughout, for me, were connection and community. At one level, this is because Imelda, Olivia, and Cameo have known each other for over 20 years. And, as you'll hear, Imelda and Olivia have collaborated on a number of major exhibitions, including the 2013 cross Institutional Collaborative Exhibition, Memories from a Forgotten People, 150 Years of Australian South Sea Islander Contributions to Queensland, and the 2019 exhibition, Plantation Voices, Contemporary Conversations with Australian South Sea Islanders. Through these exhibitions, these curators and their colleagues work to foster and support connections between institutional collections of indigenous and South Sea Islander heritage and these communities, using different platforms and methods to welcome those addressed by the exhibitions in, finding diverse ways to revive and share stories about the past, and in a way to use some anthropological language, building connection between these objects and their human kin. I really enjoyed and felt quite privileged to get to listen into to this conversation between Imelda, Olivia, and Cameo, a conversation that explores the work, serious but sometimes joyful work, of reconnecting and renarrating and repurposing and repossessing cultural heritage and ethnographic collections in the aftermath of colonialism. The conversation kicks off with Cameo asking Imelda and Olivia to introduce themselves and tell us a little about their current roles.
1: I'm Amelda Miller and I work at the Queensland Museum and I'm the curator responsible for the Pacific and Torres Strait Islander collections at the moment. Yeah, I've been working as a curator for uh, nearly two decades now, I suppose, and I really enjoy the work. But my main interest, I suppose, is around Australian South Islander history and heritage and creating awareness about that. But I, I suppose my passion also is about not just in museums, but how I can do this work outside of the museum borders. So, you know, looking at different ways of working in communities, with communities and for communities to tell the stories that they want to tell.
2: My name is Olivia Robinson and I'm the lead of collection engagement in Queensland Memory at State Library of Queensland. I have been working in cultural heritage with collections and with communities who tell stories about those collections for probably a couple of decades as well and I love the opportunity to get paid to sit down with people and for people to tell me their stories. And in that are lots of, lots of stories about family, about experience and about communities and about history and um, lots of laughter oftentimes when people talk about things and sometimes lots of tears as well. But people are so willing to share. So, yeah, I've been really blessed, I think, for the last 20 years or so to be able to work with a lot of people, particularly a lot of Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islanders, and more recently, oftentimes with Imelda, working
3: with Australian South Sea Islanders as well. And so you guys come from communities yourselves. I wonder if you can talk a bit about like how you came to be working in the institution, the institutions that you're in.
1: Yeah so I am a third generation Australian born Australian Celsius Islander and I came to museums really just through earning some part time work and needing to you know make my way in the world and during that time I learnt about collections and And it's actually where we all cross paths. And I really fell in love with the community of the work and working together and learning from one another. But I also then discovered objects and how objects can actually tell stories about people's experiences, people's lived experiences especially, but also how they have these lives of their own and how that evolves over time. During my time at the Queensland Museum, I discovered the collections from Vanuatu and the Solomons, which are where my ancestors come from. And I was really sort of taken back at the time and sort of thought, ah, I really want to know more about this. And it was a time when I was sort of exploring that side of my story. And it was through these collections that I was able to explore my identity. But then I also thought... It was an experience I wanted to share with other people. And not just with my Australian South Islander side, but working with lots of communities who are represented in these collections and connecting them to learn about the stories that they told, but for people, for communities. Because I felt like there was just this one side being told within museum walls and I wanted to explore what communities wanted, how they connected to these objects and see what that meant to them when they're in their presence because I believe that objects come alive and that they're just you know waiting for people to come along and activate them so I've just always been interested then you know going into archives and recognizing you know familiar names and familiar places and connecting those things with people you know that they connect to the most and Watching that, as Olivia was talking about, you know, the emotions that come over people when they have these experiences, for me, that's, that's what
2: the work's all about. I'm Bidjara, so my traditional country is in southwest Queensland, but I grew up in Brisbane. But I've always had quite a strong connection to that country, Bidjara country. went to university and I did a Bachelor of Arts degree, with a double major in history, as some people do, and they get to the end of it and they think, what am I going to do now? (laughs) So, and I, I thought, I had that very thought, and I thought, I wonder what they do at the museum, at the Queensland Museum. So I rang up and I think they were very excited at the fact that I was a young Aboriginal woman who was coming to the end of my degree, who was wanting to volunteer just to find out what was going on, and I think they grabbed hold of me and said yep you'll be right so come in here and so I volunteered at the museum for a while and then I got a contract and a few years later I went off and worked in community organisations as well as sort of did a bit of work with the museum over the years and I eventually came back as assistant curator in the Aboriginal Studies area at the Queensland Museum and then I became senior curator soon after that. I was quite young at the time it was An incredible experience. I learnt so much about myself as well as about the collection and about how people interact with it and the importance of people's cultural heritage, their movable cultural heritage. One of the major things that I did, and it was challenging but also really rewarding, was working on the repatriation of ancestral remains and secret sacred objects to community. It educated me about all the responsibility that community often take on to try and fix the problems of the past, you know, the bad deeds that people did so many years ago and be part of, well, what can we do now to lay people to rest or to return those objects that shouldn't have been taken and be part of that, I suppose, healing process. So it's a big responsibility, I think, that elders take on to work with places like the museum or to work with other cultural institutions and collecting institutions. From the museum I ended up coming to the State Library to do something a little bit different. I worked in Indigenous uh, Library Services for a time as a Senior Policy Officer. And then eventually, like all things do when it comes to collections and objects, and stories, I ended up in Queensland Memory, which is all about, you know, a collection, slightly different to the Queensland Museum collection, but still the same thing. Objects and photos and, like Imelda, I really believe too that they are very much sort of objects that if you... They're nothing by themselves. What brings them alive is the stories that people have about them And so the great stuff and the stuff that I love is actually getting to that story and seeing the value that people bring to it. It's often the community that bring that understanding and that value
3: to objects. Yeah. It's interesting hearing you both talk about the kind of potency of objects and of archives and of photographs in terms of people coming into the institution that you're working in and how powerful that can be as an experience for people. I guess I'm interested in like as you say these spaces like historically haven't always been very hospitable to uh, communities to Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people or South Sea Islander people they've not necessarily been seen as places that those communities feel comfortable in or that are accessible And I wonder how you see your role, I guess, in sort of managing that or trying to change that for people when it might be quite difficult or confronting for people to come into those spaces.
1: Yeah, good question, Camille. But something that's really relevant, and I think we, uh, you know, staff working in these organisations talk about constantly, I think... For me, or for my experiences and watching colleagues over the years, seeing how people relate to seeing their own, working in these institutions, and that instant kind of rapport that you get when that happens, I think is really integral to people being comfortable, especially, you know, I think in Olivia sort of was getting and touching on it, but you know, some of the experience that people have can be traumatic and then sometimes it's about healing. And so because you're dealing with this emotional kind of, I don't know, experience for our visitors, you know, you really, I think, having people who are Indigenous or First Nations or from that community, that no matter who, what community, that people see themselves there in that institution and see that... Uh, OK, so there's a possibility that I'm going to be understood here. I think it's integral for the well-being of community when they're coming in because it's not just about the visit. It's also about watching and caring for your visitor while they're in this space that could bring up histories or lived experiences that might have been traumatic to them you know or even finding a photo of their ancestor or their grandmother for the first time and you know watching them go through that but allowing them you know to have space and time and to be able to take that in but also to be able to give them information at the times
2: when they require it so they're able to sort of process their way through it. The other thing that I thought of too, Mel, when you were talking about it, is that as collecting and cultural institutions, state sort of owned institutions, we have a remit to collect the history, the cultural heritage of Queensland. And for a lot of Australian South Sea Islander history, Aboriginal history, Torres Strait Islander history, you know, oftentimes those types of histories are marginalised. You know, our collections are often they've been donated by families or we've acquired them from families or places that are sort of you know the mainstream sort of community and what was amazing about the times that I've worked with Imelda particularly around the Australian South Sea Islander community you know when we marked the 150 years of the first South Sea Islanders to come to Queensland and then some other work we've done including Plantation Voices is that It is about that agency, particularly with Plantation Voices, we were able to acknowledge the fact that a lot of the material that we had in the collection, in the State Library collection, about Australian South Sea Islanders, was through the lens of basically Europeans. The way they saw them, the photos, the documentation that we had in the collection, there wasn't anything in there that was by Australian South Sea Islanders reflecting on their own history and their own culture. So Imelda, as a curator of Plantation Voices, went through that journey of going, well, this is our opportunity to do that. I think, Imelda, you're right in the sense that the collections that we have as state institutions really need to reflect the population and the history and there's a lot of work that we still need to do around that because a lot of it is very heavy still about european history or about you know non-indigenous history of queensland or of queensland culture or lifestyle and it is very diverse and we need to bring more of those stories in and share more of those stories through through things like exhibitions
3: mm. Mm. And obviously, like, as you say, there's a lot of the objects and archives and photographic materials that are held both at the State Library, where we are today, State Library of Queensland, and also the Queensland Museum. Some of those objects were acquired in ways that's really, objects were stolen. Motionable, yeah. Mm, mm. And how does that history fit in with the relationship with communities? I mean, do you, do you get a sense of people still feeling that sense of kind of mistrust or distrust in the institutions given some of that history?
2: Yes I think so I mean it's generational isn't it it's been going on for a long time I think there's been an acknowledgement of that say in the last 20 to 30 years but there's still a long road to go down that path of understanding and I suppose that healing process that people have because It seems like a long time ago, I suppose, when you talk about it, but it really isn't. It's only maybe one generation away, you know, from where we are now.
3: Like how important do you think like repatriation processes and those sorts of things are as part of that journey, that sort of healing journey that you talked about?
2: Repatriation, it's very important. Unfortunately, though, it's a complex situation, I think, A lot of communities they really want material returned to them I suppose it happens a lot in with museum collections but they also acknowledge the fact that well they don't have land to put it on you know they don't have land for a keeping place or they don't have secure access to land which if they were to put artifacts back on country where is it going to be secure and you know, so it's not taken again and ends up in a collecting institution again or in someone's private home. In saying that, there's also something around access there too. So as institutions become more open about access, people know that it's going to be there and it's going to be looked after and it's not going to be eaten by bugs or it's not going to be, you know, or it's not going to end up in someone's wardrobe somewhere, you know, in the back of a wardrobe where no one knows that it's there. So they sort of know that they can come to places, you know, like collecting cultural institutions and be able to see it or access it when they need to. Mm. And that gives, I think, people some comfort in the absence of having, you know, grand or not so grand sometimes, keeping places where they can bring material back to.
1: Mm.
2: The repatriation of ancestral remains, however, is quite different. And there's definitely a lot of healing that happens as a part of that process. And I've been involved in, you know, a few repatriation ceremonies and there is really, it's really nothing like it in the sense that that sense of, I suppose, spiritual connection that people have and it just transcends, it transcends sort of everything, I suppose, the reality of our day-to-day work. At the end of the day, it's those types of things that are like to take, you know, a person that's been sitting in a museum or something like that for a 100 years and take them back home and lay them on country. How good is that? I think that word repatriation
1: is really interesting as it, starts to then sneak into looking at objects and what is the definition of repatriation when it comes to collections and how do museums or cultural institutions deal with repatriation of objects and deal with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples being the owner of their cultural heritage and I think there's a bigger conversation to be had around that, you know, in coming years. I think that's gonna be a really big topic and I think how we deal with that moving forward, there's gotta be a lot of conversations with communities at the table to actually work out what does that mean and how does that take place and what is suitable for everybody. And I think, Olivia, you touched on something really good, was just around access. Access and agency and representation. I mean, we've been
2: talking about that for a little while.
1: Mm. The
2: R words. We also, in talking over many years, talk about reclamation. Yeah. And we have. And that word repatriation was one of the first words that we talked about when we talked about plantation voices, you know, when we were sort of thinking about what that exhibition could be about. It sort of started with repatriation, wasn't it? It was, a,
1: you know, yeah. it we sort
2: of talked about... Because it had, like Amelda said, it has very different meanings in different contexts.
1: You know, and I suppose, you know, talking about Plantation Voices, that was an exhibition Olivia and I worked on here at the State Library in 2019. Um, the full title was Plantation Voices, Contemporary Conversations with Australian South sea Islanders. You know, I was lucky enough to be brought over to the State Library, you know, and really acknowledge and thank the State Library for that opportunity to work here, to do that exhibition. And it was really um, came at a time when I was looking for a new challenge, as you do as a curator, and to explore your own community stories is always an honour, and it's a privilege to be able to do that. And I think we're coming over to work in the library in 2019 to do that. Certainly, I, you know, I didn't know what was happening when we first spoke about it, but when Olivia and I first met and we sort of thought, oh, well, what is this about, as she said? And, you know, we talked about repatriation of South Sea Islanders, you know, the deportation of islanders, this mass deportation of islanders out of this country, and like one of the biggest mass deportation in this country's history, yet nobody knows about it. And so we, as part of the exhibition, thought, oh, what are our themes gonna be for this? And we thought about one was recognising that past, then it was about the repatriation of islanders. And then we thought after that, the next big thing was about reclaim our own histories through recognition statement through being nationally recognized and then finally the end part was about our the next generation like the resilience that they now stand very confident in who they are where they come from where their ancestors come from they're now telling that story in this case through their contemporary artworks that was a really powerful moment and then you know we're talking about repatriation and I think it all kind of goes in together and I think it comes also as a part of that recognition and what are the actions that we do as part of repatriation of stories or objects What what is the action that we're actually going to do to make that happen.
3: So, obviously, the exhibition ran from uh, February to September 2019, but there was obviously a whole process of developing that exhibition that came before it. But before we get to that collaborative process, and there's all these little amazing elements that were part of it, but can you give me a sense of what it was like, you know, as an experience moving through the exhibition? I might be too close to this. (laughs) (laughs) It was bright. There was...
2: You know the designer who was appointed to design the space, the exhibition, with Amelda's guidance as well as the curator about what she saw when she thought of the exhibition. There was lots of orange. There was lots of bright colours, reflective, I suppose, of mangoes and islands and flowers and I suppose frangipanies. Yeah, sure.
1: and I think too like it was the idea of memory as well that when you're thinking of those who are dearest it's usually around a sunrise or a sunset and you get that orange and because we were presenting our ancestors in that case through photographs and objects it was about evoking a sunset
2: where you Think about those memories and those dearest to you. And I know listening to Imelda too, talking about her vision for the exhibition, it was also around how people would sit, plant, Australian South Islanders would plant mango trees and then sit under them and use them for shade and talk. So mangoes and the whole mango tree and all of that type of stuff was a big part, certainly, of memory and place. It, we were talking about the landscape and how people people's stories were in those landscapes across Queensland
3: yeah. So it sounds like it was a very rich kind of visual experience very colourful and bright and, and attractive but also in that in some of the images I've seen online there were also some historical photographs black and white photographs taken of South Sea Islanders working in the cane fields um, at that time and some of that imagery is, is obviously also quite Difficult or challenging for people, so I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how you balance, uh, I guess maybe what we might think of on the one hand as this sort of, I don't want to say happy, to you know, to make it too simplistic, but these kinds of bright, attractive, seductive aesthetic with also this quite difficult and um, traumatic history.
1: You know, I think part of the exhibition was actually, you know, from talking to people. This is from decades of talking to people, (laughs) but I think we are uh, very happy people and I wanted people to feel that. And yes, we do have this dark history. For many years we've been working together, you know, I've been doing a lot of work in this area, I suppose, so... This was a building block, and we have, like in 2013, Olivia was here at the State Library, Ruth McDougall was at the Queensland Art Gallery, Gallery of Modern Art, and we joined together for a project called Memories of a Forgotten People during the 150th commemoration of South Islanders coming into Southeast Queensland. And I think that, you know, we digitised the collection and we had worked through a whole heap of, stories and acknowledging trauma and trying to acknowledge how problematic this history is but we're also resilient people and we've come out the other side and I suppose that's for this stage you know taking our step further from 2013 going into Plantation Voice was about celebrating that so it was about acknowledging it And then it was about celebrating who we are and how resilient we are as people. And that, you know, and our history is safe, you know, with our young people too going forward. But I suppose I didn't want it to be emotionally dark because it is a a dark history. Yeah, the lightness of it all was about seeing us as well. So in contrast, so, you know, there's us as a people and bringing that out and, you know, we did some life-size photographs because, you know, I talked to a lot of
2: people and it was like, don't walk around our history anymore, like, look at us. So... I think Imelda was quite savvy. I think you sold yourself short a little bit in just how savvy you were in making the selection of those photos because I think with each one you were making a point with it. You wanted it to be meaningful and for it to say something to a person that was viewing it. So I remember this one photo that you were particularly keen on including and it was of the mother in the field with her child For me, that photograph has been with me since
1: I started in my museum days and, Camille, you might remember it in a past exhibition way back when and it was actually probably one of the first images I saw that really sort of started to ignite that kind of drive in me to find out more, like seeing her picture and I remember standing in front of it one day. It was a large-scale photograph I probably first saw it in the 1990s and I remember standing there with my parents and we all stood there and thought, because she was actually smiling, she had this little baby in the field at her feet and she was smiling in that photo and I remember us going, I wonder if she was really smiling, because there is another photo and she's not smiling, but... When you look at that photo you see this mother with her child at her feet in a sugar plantation and half the field has been ploughed and there's still half the field to be done. And you can see how much hard work is being done and then you think about this mother with her baby in this field while she works. And I wondered about her story, what happened to them and where did they go. And I suppose I, I remember sitting in, a, in the office trying to <laughs> write the first words about the exhibition. I think I sat for four days, cameo. I didn't write a thing. <laughs> I didn't dare tell Olivia. But And then I really had to confront in myself, well, well, why can't I put pen to paper here, you know? And then it actually became a quote in the exhibition and, and it was about seeing those... ..seeing the people in those photos for the first time and that... I wondered who they were and who were their families and where did they go and what happened to them. And for me, it was just like, I get emotional now talking about it, but-
3: I can see some tears now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but for me, it was like, oh my God, I've been looking at these photos for 20 years and I've finally seen them, you know, and the people in them. And it's just like, they're, they're really real. And they're, they're part of who I am. And I think the line was, Sorry, I've tried not to cry, everyone. <laughs> uh, but I think the line was I exist because they do, and they now exist because I do. Mm. 150 years on. That was kind of a magical moment for me.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, <all> know. <laughs> uh, uh. You know, obviously, we have a bit of a diverse listenership, and so some people also probably don't know much about the history of South Sea Islanders in Australia so particularly for listeners outside Australia can you maybe just give us a very sort of brief summary of the I mean obviously memories are very potent for lots of people but particularly in this history which is a a history of South Sea Islander people being forcibly often in a lot of situations forcibly kidnapped and brought to Australia to work uh, as slaves. This history is, um, it's not a benign history. I wonder if you could just maybe just, for that sort of listenership who might not know much of that history, I wonder if you could just...
1: Just in a nutshell, <laughs> between 1863 and 1904, some 60,000 Celsius Islanders, predominantly from Vanuatu and the Solomons, as well as from New Caledonia, Fiji, Kiribati and some parts of Papua New Guinea were brought to Australia to to actually develop, you know, just be the backbone of the Australian sugar industry. They were brought over here to clear the lands, so it's not like the pretty jobs, it was all about clearing the lands, the work was hard, the land was hard, people were coming to places without their families. Some were young, men, women, and children coming over here, and the conditions that they were working in were not not very similar to home, similar to home and ways. But you know, the clothing that they had, they were exposed to diseases that they've never been exposed to before, and some of the conditions that they worked under, for example, pay, it was very discriminating. What people faced. But you did talk about as well as blackbirding. So blackbirding is people being tricked or coerced into getting on board these ships that brought them over here to Australia. And there are many stories in the community about this history. Um, This happened mainly early on in the history and then legislation was brought about to try and kind of sort out this movement of human labour across the Pacific. But I don't know, you know, I always try to think, you try to imagine what would it be like, you know, being young on an island and then coming out here to a place where you don't speak the language. You're now put with a whole heap of people who speak other languages and now expected to work together and get along. So, you just wander about, you know, and that's, I suppose, through this work, you try to put people in that place and think about, you know, how, how do you cope in that situation as a human or your child or your son or daughter to go and do that, you know. Mm. But I suppose the other part of this history is about that deportation and then what happened to the community after that deportation. So that happened in, with the introduction of the White Australia policy, and then legislation was brought about to deport South sea Islanders back to their home islands. And at that time, in the early 1900s, there's probably about 10,000 South sea Islanders living here in Australia. South sea Islanders fought for, some stayed here because they had families, they had made lives here. Some had been here for 40 years. Some were elderly. Some could no longer go back to their islands. And so some people were exempt from going. And some 1,500 people remained here in Australia. And my family and many others like my family, who are now called Australian South Sea Islanders, are descended of those 1,500 who
2: remained here.
3: I wonder if there was an intersection through this history with the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Absolutely. South sea Islander people. Yeah, know.
2: absolutely. I mean, they were often, they lived nearby, they intermarried. So, basically all up the coast of Queensland. And I think the interesting thing about this, about this part of Australia's history, is that it's a really important part of Queensland's history. So unlike a lot of the other states, we had quite a large population of Australian South Sea Islanders. So, you know, it's that ongoing story mm. as well. And it is still ongoing. Like, you know, Amelda, you might want to talk about the fight for recognition still continues, hey? Yeah, yeah. So Australian
1: South Sea Islanders were recognised by the federal government in 1994 and then the Queensland government acknowledged um, Australian South Island contributions to Queensland's history in officially in two thousand. And I think that today, even people, you know, the community still go, well, but what's happened from two thousand, which was twenty-one years ago? What actions have actually happened for the betterment of our community? And so I think still having, you know, been recognised and is still a big part of that story. But I think the other part, which I think we were just talking about a moment ago, was the relationship with Aboriginal peoples and Torres Strait Islanders, as, as Olivia said. They were, we're all interconnected, you know, th- through marriage. And, and I think that th- there is a shared experience there. But I know that in 2013, we worked really... Hard for with the memories of forgotten people to actually... to sort of create awareness about the history, but also then, you know, try and make it OK for our children, who have got many identities, to be OK to be those many identities. And I think that was the great thing when we did Plantation Voices, is that we did have the likes of people like Dilla Mooney, and the Vomba Bongi and who all have this mixed heritage and who could all be a part of the exhibition.
3: Yeah I wonder if we can switch a bit to talk a, a little bit about the community engagement side of the project which is obviously so fundamental and there was some crowdsourcing as part of the exhibition in terms of the use of History Pin and Flickr in in terms of images? Oh this might be your turn. Is that right? Is that right? I'm interested uh, yeah I'm interested to know how you use these sort of technologies to sort of place these memories and photos in the context in the geographies the places that they came from.
2: Well at the outset can I say we couldn't have done it without Imelda (laughs) curating plantation voices and also you know working together in 2013 with the 150th Memories from a Forgotten People and that's where a lot of that work started. We obviously had some amazing sort of content in the collection, everything from publications and rare books to photographs and documentation, diaries, you know, manuscripts, everything like that. So we very much went on a journey in 2013 of digitising content, putting it on our catalogue, putting it online, putting it on Flickr, you know, Anywhere we could, we wanted to get the content out there. We certainly used every platform that we could um, at our disposal, like History Pin. And making it accessible. So I think that
1: interaction with things like History Pin, you know, (sighs) because most of the community is not here. Well, and Queensland's a big place, Mm. you know, so it was trying to, you know, get people involved no matter where they are that they could actually interact with this content and I think try to start to maybe even map it out. I don't know what I was thinking, but, you know, trying to map places or map this landscape that we were living in, I suppose, you know, and what does that start to look like in connection to the documentation that's available, you know, whether that's a register or whether that's... I think there's a bank book that somebody had... You know, looking at seeing where people actually were and I think
2: that was sort of a bit of the aim of the game to try and, like I said, see what this landscape looked like. One of the things we did in the lead-up to the exhibition as part of its development is we held a white gloves experience for the Australian South Sea Islander community and they're things that we sometimes do at the State Library and it's basically you're putting the white gloves on. If anyone's worked with collections, they know what that's all about. And we just get out all of this material and we lay it all out and people can come and look through it and interact with it. So we did that as part of the development of Plantation Voices. We did it certainly in 2013 and it was a huge success. And then in the lead up to Plantation Voices, we did it again. And I think I remember at one stage saying to Imelda, the doors closed at that stage, we weren't actually starting until I think 10.30 that day, and I said, Melda it's only like quarter past 10 and there's a line up of people waiting to get into the room and yeah the community were just so keen to come in and to spend the time with the historical material and i think having those types of experiences i mean they were fantastic for us i was like going isn't this wonderful that people get to see this and to get to go through it but i think sometimes big institutions big collecting institutions can be quite daunting to people Particularly if, you know, they have to call things out, they have to look on a catalogue, then they have to call things out from the repository. But coming into a room and it's all laid out for you, it's like, oh, this is great. And there was many, so many discoveries made that day. You know, people found their relatives or, you know, made those connections, mm. seen things that they've never seen before. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty special.
1: And I think what was really, you know, we talk about community engagement in these projects and... And, Kemi, I think off-air we did let you know that every time Olivia and I work together, there seems to be a major weather event. And this day there was a storm. um, Because this this event was only supposed to go for, like, two hours. It ended up going for four because a storm came and nobody could go anywhere. But... Also, I think a big kind of moment in that day was actually watching everybody interact with one another. And you could see people making connections with one another. And, you know, there was someone going, Oh, come over here. You need to meet your cousin, you know. And I remember talking to Olivia after the event and saying, That is the power of this kind of event that we as a community don't get time to spend time in our history. We're too busy trying to live our lives and survive and, you know, do everything else that when it comes to learning about our own story and our own history, these kind of times are so precious because it's a couple of hours where you sit down and you can just be you know with Plantation voices in 2019 I think that was a big part of it was about providing these events where everyone could actually come together and share their stories but then have time to share with one another and connect and I think even after 2020 last year connecting with people we can see how important that is to our well-being I think and our healing and that was definitely a big push about community
2: engagement through that project and through the duration of the exhibition
1: yeah
2: i think you realize too through community engagement just how generous people are wanting to share to be better informed or to be part of that education of other people about their history as well because you know whenever i don't know if it's just because when we go out of Melder we like to talk and it ends up what you think is going to take an hour it takes all day and Because people just want to sit down and have a yarn and talk about memories and talk about
1: their history.
2: The people want to be heard and people
1: want to be recognised and they want to be acknowledged and I know in the work when we did back in 2013 and I know when I went out with Ruth McDougall from Queensland Art Gallery that she did some digital stories for an exhibition called Sugar and... During that time, you know, we would do these interviews and one of the last questions I always ask is about, do you have anything else to contribute? And some of the people were like, oh, thank you for asking me about my story. You know, in my 63 years, no-one's ever asked me what my story is. And I think that's, you know, it's such a privilege what we do. And I think that's the power of what we do is, and I'm a true believer in everybody has a story to tell. And just acknowledging people just wanting to be heard and that our time as part of professionals in these institutions, that just spending time with people and listening to their stories can be very healing for somebody. And I think, you know, they give their time to us, but that's something that we can give back. And I think that these relationships that we're developing, they're not just about... You know, what I hoped is that we're just not taking, that we're also giving back, you know, and that it's actually a relationship in the way that community sees relationship and that there's actually an exchange, that it's not a transaction, but more an exchange of that kind of, yeah, how giving, you know, that we need to be givers as well. And I think sometimes when we're in big institutions, you don't have time to think about giving, but that is I think that's something special that happens during development
2: of these kind of projects. I think too, like when they're done in with community, when they're developed with community, there is that exchange of knowledge about I mean I I'm pretty confident now that you know, some of the communities we worked with definitely know what an exhibition is all about. Definitely know what a digital story is all about, and how you can go about doing it. In fact, one of the communities that we work with for a long time over the years, Heyam Elder on the Sunshine Coast, they now are developing their own digital stories and hiring filmmaker, and they can see the value in that and how you can sort of take your history and record your elders and share that with people because it's it's about their community as well it's about strengthening those historical those memories for their own community and so yeah they're right into it and I think they can see hey it's not you can easily do this yourself it's just going through the process of it so I think that's pretty good as well that it will be obsolete soon. I know. That's the idea. Community <laughs> method. Yeah, that's, that's right. right. <laughs> they don't need us anymore. We'll just get requests for it. we would like this object and this object. And this object. <laughs> right.
3: well, that seems like a really lovely point to finish up on. Unless of course, do you have anything else you'd like to contribute? <laughs> I'll just do a little plug though. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it.
1: No, well, you know, I suppose the next step on for that work is the Australian Research Council grant that I currently am working on, which is about archaeology and collections and Australia, Australian Celsius Islander lived identities. So that's a partnership with the Sydney University, Queensland Museum, University of Queensland, QT and Federation University. I think I've got everybody. <laughs> so, But you know, the most important partners in that is the Australian South Islander community. So we're currently going to be working with communities in Mackay, Air, and Round Rockhampton. Yeah, and sort of carrying on some of the legacy that we've done over the years with the State Library and working with communities and trying to push a community-led research framework and what does that look like? Because we're plantation voices, we were, you know, I stood back after we'd finished it all and I thought, okay, so we went from people taking photos of us to people taking photos with us, to us taking our own photographs and telling our own stories in our own ways. And I think now stepping into the ARC project, For me, it's about us participating in our research as researchers and as equals and that knowledge that we carry be acknowledged and finding ways within that research framework to actually think about, okay, how can this be done and trying not to settle too early that we try and have that respected.
2: I suppose the only thing that I'd really say is that Plantation Voices, I think, reminded me about how powerful, you know, someone like Amelda can be. So someone who is Australian South Sea Islander, who is a curator, who, well, who comes from community, but at the same time sort of knows about cultural heritage and about these institutions, and how powerful that combination can be in telling stories and telling stories and sharing stories. Like we said earlier, that Plantation Voices is the gift that keeps giving and it does. It was this exhibition, like you said, that went from February to September and so many things have happened around that. So many interactions we've had. You know, visitors from Vanuatu come and a lot of them. The foreign minister for Vanuatu came and visited us. We've had countless community people come through. We've had so many people now better informed about the history of Queensland, about Australian South Sea Islander history. And it's just, it goes from strength to strength. Like it's just, I don't know what to say except that it is a really special and in retrospect, I think like Imelda, when you sit back and you look at it, you go, wow, that was really cool. And it continues to be. And I think the key part of it is about community because they own it as well. I think
1: and it's just been an absolute pleasure and privilege to be able to, you know, do this work. It, like you say, and in reflection, I, I see the community is proud of what has been done. But it's, it is a privilege to work with the community and to honour their stories and to tell it how they like it to be told. But sometimes it can't be done on your own and you need great helpers and great colleagues to work with and part of being great colleagues is about all having the same agenda and being on the same page and I've been very lucky to have that and I think going forward we've built this great relationship and who knows what might happen next but it's been an absolutely great ride to be on.
3: Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. And, of course, lovely to see you both after 20 years. My goodness. Let's not wait so long. (laughs)
1: Definitely. (laughs) Thanks, Cameo. Thank Thank you. you.
3: You've been listening to another episode of Conversations in Anthropology. Our guests this time were Imelda Miller of the Queensland Museum and Olivia Robinson of the State Library of Queensland. This episode was produced by Cameo Dally on the lands of the turbo and Jagera peoples and edited by Timothy Neal and myself, David Border giles with the support of Matt Barlow, Mythley Maher, the American Anthropological Association and the Australian Anthropological Society. If you enjoyed the show, think about giving us a rating on your favourite podcasting platform and we'll see you next time.
2: Right. <laughs> it's not like talking live on radio.
3: Yeah. <laughs> oh that would be terrifying.
2: I think so too. Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. So... <laughs>